welcome to another episode of the Lean RAQA Today podcast. I'm Michelle Lott, owner of Lean RAQA, and I'm here with my longtime colleague, Edwin Bills. Now, many of you are going to know Ed through his long-term time participation, posting topics and answering questions in our industry forums. Ed has a storied career that covers 39 years in quality and regulatory affairs. He teaches graduate classes and has achieved a number of certifications through RAPS and um, ASQ. He's co-authored a book on the life cycle of risk management, and most notably, uh, Ed serves on the International Technical Committee, whose work authors the 14971 set of standards for risk management and medical devices. Ed, tell me a little bit about the background, history, and intent of the 14971 standards and how long you've been involved with their authorship. Well, 14971 goes back a long, long way. Part of the impetus was the medical device directives in Europe. Uh, They required some risk management stuff when they were first published, and the Europeans... um, put together a standard EN 1441 on risk analysis, which was based upon FMEA. At some point, uh, the move was to internationalize that based on the idea that there's another uh, storied standard that I participated in, IEC 60601. 601 was going from a medical device standard that was prescriptive to something that wasn't prescriptive. Yeah, let me say that carefully, because the technology was moving so fast that the IEC could not keep up with it. And so the idea came about that maybe we should use risk management in IEC 601 to allow the different technologies to be developed over time. And and rather than taking all the time to develop a new standard every time the technology changed and nothing would be up to date. The idea was to, to do a risk management standard. At the same time, that was on the IEC side. On the ISO side, there was something about risk management that was bubbling up as well. That, that came through the EN standard. So both of those groups, IEC and ISO, decided that we needed an international risk management standard. So about 1998, I think there was an IEC 14971-1 published, which was based upon 1441, which was the risk analysis standard. And the folks realized as they're developing this risk analysis standard that, hey, there's a whole lot more to this than risk analysis. It's a risk management process. So they no more than published the dash one and started on the new 14971 risk management standard, which replaced the dash one. So dash one didn't last very long at all, just a couple of years. And it was replaced with 14971 risk management. So that was, of course, then when uh, 60601 was developed, it started referring to 14971 and the different uh, risk management requirements within that standard. And that's kind of the pathway that other standards started picking up. 14971 is all over the place now. There's um, things like uh, the biocompatibility uh, standards 10993 that has a, a, a dash one document, which is how do you apply risk management 
to biocompatibility. And you know, it goes on and on and on. Just in the uh, 601 family, there's 200 standards in that, in that family. And they all uh, have parts that talk about risk management. So it's all over the place. So it was released in 2000. In 2003, the uh, rationale was added to standards so people would understand why each of the requirements existed. So there was an amendment issued in 2003, uh, and that stood for a while until uh, the 2007 edition came out. Now, these are all international versions now. ISO covers all of the world. It was translated into lots of languages. It, it became a worldwide standard. In the 2007 edition in 2009 uh, was adopted by Europe as an EN standard, EN ISO 14971, 2009. And that was about the time the breast implant scandal hit. And um, the whole world fell apart in Europe when that happened. So they decided the 2009 wasn't acceptable we had to do something different, but Europe could not change any of the requirements in the standard. At the time, in the 2007 edition, the requirements were clauses one through nine. The numbered clauses, there's, those are requirements. Anything else is not requirements. And the Z annexes are not requirements for the international standard. Those are sections that tell you where the international standard doesn't fully meet up with the requirements of the directives. So they, they wrote the, uh, the infamous 2012 edition, which had a lot of errors in it and caused a lot of uproar. Harm. <laughs> uproar. And uh, the story I got was actually written by one lawyer uh, who didn't know anything about risk management. So maybe that's why. At any rate, in 2013, our technical committee, the one that wrote 14971, the ISO version, published a technical report, which was never heard of because it wasn't connected to the 2007 edition of the standard. It came the other direction. Usually, you publish the standard, then you refer to the technical report in the standard. Well, the standard came first technical report came second. So nobody knew that ISO TR 24971 was published with six uh, sections that talked about specific uh, areas of concern, like post-production, production and post-production information, use of international standards, risk acceptability. You know, there, were, there was some really good information there. Uh, but nobody knew about it. It floated around for a long time and they didn't sell many copies of it. So what you're saying is that 24971 has existed as a standalone document for long before the, when most of us are now aware of it, which is yep. when they pulled the annexes out of 14971 and added them to the 24971. Standards are, are reviewed every five years to either reaffirm and say, yes, that's still good or revise. So the, uh, the date that we were actually a little bit off, but uh, in, in 2005, I think there was one in 2010 and one 
in uh, uh, 2015, where it went back out. It was reviewed by all of the national committees of both IEC and ISO. So those people look at the standard and they um, say, yes, it's good or no, we want this added. And they are allowed to um, submit comments. I think we ended up uh, at the end of that vote. What it said was, yeah, the standard is, the process is still good, but we need more information. And it's funny because the 2000 said we need information, more information. The amendment in 2003 said we need more information. 2007 was published, need more information. And that led to the, the 2013, uh, 24971 came out of that. When that was published, said we need more information. So the 2015 uh, vote had, I think it was 60 categories of comments that came back, uh, collated from IEC and ISO. They came to our technical committee and said, here, here's the things you need to address. And we got a charge from ISO, said, look, every time you've had this vote, the process is still good, but we need more information. Technical reports are about more information. They are reviewed every three years as opposed to standards every five years. So you need to move all of your informative annexes into the technical report, because we'll review that every three years, and then the, the questions can be addressed separately, and the standard won't have to be uh, voted to revise when all they're asking for is more information. So it was is kind of convoluted, but that's what the charge was from ISO and IEC. Don't revise the process. Give us information in all these 60 areas that we got back. And that's kind of the razor's edge, I think, of conversations you and I have been having is the difference between that information was always for information purposes, for ideas, for examples, not requirements, but industry and even regulators had been interpreting it as requirements. Correct. Yeah. They are saying, oh, you, you got to do all this stuff in, in 14971. It was all in one document, so everybody assumed those were all requirements when, in fact, they were not. Only clauses one through nine, the numbered clauses in the 2007 edition, were requirements. Annexes A through H were informative or guidance or ideas about how you might approach risk management, not how you have to approach risk management. Mm -hmm. So that's the purpose of the informative annex It's just ideas. Uh, different ways. And, and in fact, in the, um, the latest 24971, we tried to put a number of examples in, in places um, where that would, would help people. You can do it this way or this way or this way or this way to get the idea that, hey, there's lots of options available. You don't have to do it this one way. We may want to talk about at this point the infamous P1 and P2 we had a lot of trouble with people understanding how the probability of a failure occurring was not the same as the probability of harm occurring. They were different. And the reason they were different was that there were lots of things that had to happen to expose the hazard in such a way that harm could occur. There was a sequence of events 
that needed to take place. There, there were things that, that it didn't go direct from A to C, it went through B. And so we uh, came up with a hazardous situation and the fact that there's a probability that the hazardous situation will occur and there's another probability that the harm will occur. And those are different. But to get from failure to harm, you, you had to add up, not add up, but uh, compile all these probabilities to understand what the probability of harm was occurring. And that is really beneficial for the manufacturers because the probability of harm occurring is always lower than the probability of the failure occurring. If you do your risk analysis correctly, you're going to find out that maybe that uh, probability of harm occurring is low enough that your risk might be acceptable rather than just the probability of the harm is not acceptable because or the probability of the hazard occurring is not acceptable. Harm would directly occur and it's not true. It won't directly occur. So what has happened since the P1 and P2? It's like they got together and had babies. Everybody said we got to do P1 and P2, and uh, they they were quite convoluted in many cases with these numbers. Everybody, meaning the people who got together and misinterpreted P1 and P2 as a requirement. That's right. Mm. Uh, it's not a requirement. It was uh, an explanation of why the probability of harm occurring is different from the probability of a failure occurring. It was educational. That was the intent when we put it in the informative annexes. Mm-hmm. So you could you could think about why that harm occurring probability is, is different than the, the failure. And there's an outgrowth of that. That's, a, that's an outgrowth of misuse of FMEA as your only risk analysis tool also, because that was, it, it, it's a reliability analysis tool, not mm-hmm. a risk analysis co- tool. At any rate, you take the, um, effect from the failure occurring. And then if it's safety related, then you take it into a risk analysis and determine what the hazardous situation is, the probability of occurrence of the hazardous situation, the sequence of events, and then what the probability of harm occurring is and, and put that all together. So it takes a while to get from FMEA to the uh, risk acceptability. So now we're talking about, but PA, PB, PC, PD, which is at what's outlined in the 24971. Yes, the new 24971, the 2020 edition, talks about now breaking the, it down to a whole bunch of P's instead of just two, because in reality, there are more things. That, that sequence of events that I talked about, there's several P's in there, Okay. And, and it's not just a, a P1, but, you know, it could be an A, B, C, whatever. And, and so that's all theoretical. And you have to figure out how, in your case, that theoretical application works. It just, again, is to help you understand how you got to that probability of harm occurring. Um, not just that all these specific numbers that you added together, but it's just based upon the information you have. Now, I've often seen industry get carried away with the p-values and try to make it a qualitative 
activity. What is your opinion about if it's qualitative or, or subjective at the end of the day? Well, you, you can only use qualitative values when the confidence level you have in your data is significant enough to allow that. If you have a brand new device that's never been done before, you're not going to have quantitative values until you get to real people using your device. And that's going to occur not before design validation. You're going to be using qualitative values of probability all the way through the development until you start getting some patient exposure to the product. And maybe not even until it's released to the field because the confidence level at the design validation step may not be significant to support those, those um, levels. You know, that's why a lot of people, and we use a lot of examples in, in uh, the technical report of uh, qualitative levels in the uh, um, risk charts that we, we've got examples of in the uh, technical report. So qualitative is always good for probability. Now, I, I will go out on a limb and I'll say this, severity is always qualitative. And I like to use what the uh, vigilance re uh, systems use is the terminology like death, serious injury requiring medical intervention to preclude permanent damage to a body part or body structure. And then um, the next one down is serious injury not requiring medical intervention to preclude permanent damage. And then you go down to negligible or, you know, all those terms. And the reason I like those is because that connects together your risk management to your post-production stuff, your complaint investigations, your CAPA investigations. They're, they come in with the terms of death and serious injury in that, not a, a, a number, okay? This helps us in the life cycle part of your medical device risk management process because it covers the entire life cycle of the device. You need to update your files based upon what you learned after the device is released. That's there. And also, um, there's no consensus on medical devices on how much a uh, life is worth. So you can't put a dollar value on it. Although there's some people that try to talk about something called quality or, and uh, that's not applicable in our industry. So we use qualitative levels of severity. Thus, at the end of the day, no matter how many hours you spend locked in the conference room uh, arguing over the numbers, it is at the end of the day, the subjective activity. There's a lot of places where we say in the standard judgment mm -hmm. is required. That implies a lot of things right there. It does. And um, I think maybe, Michelle, this is one place we can go to standards and how standards can be used to shut down or cut down on these hours-long meetings of risk analysis. And you and I have talked about this. There is uh, an annex, and uh, I, I keep my copies of my documents right close at hand when I do this so I can get the right numbers. Annex E in 24971, uh, the 2020 edition, talks about the role of international standards in risk management. And if you 
have found that a hazard is identified in a standard, that hazard has unacceptable risk in the risk management system automatically. So you don't have to have a meeting. You don't have to talk about it. You need to write it into your risk analysis that there's this hazard. The risk is unacceptable because the standards writers determined that. And then if the standards writers told you, here's a risk control measure or a tool that you can use to reduce this risk. And if you comply with that method that they have specified in the standard, and then you perform the test that the standard requires you to verify that that was implemented and the results are effective, you're done. You don't have to have a meeting. You just write this stuff in your risk analysis. And the purpose for that is to make sure that nobody changes a device in the future and removes those risk controls. Because that hazard is present. It's been defined. It's been identified. The, the method for reducing has been identified. It's all there. And somebody's already done the work for you. Don't try to reinvent the thing because you'll come up with a different answer and it won't be right. And so then you're just down to the design review and a risk benefit analysis review instead of the hours that you normally spend locked in a conference room, working all these things through the PHA, the probability, et cetera. Yep. Reduced your workload. Now there's still some things out there that the standards don't identify that it's up to you to find. And it's up to you to look for known and foreseeable stuff. Now, um, in December, there was a new standard release for clinical trials, ISO 14155. Okay, that was the, uh, I think the third revision maybe or something like that. And in that standard, in the back of that standard, there's a, uh, a diagram that shows how 14971 and 14155 are connected. Uh, basically, what happens is before you can do a clinical trial, you have to do a risk analysis following 14971. It tells you right in that standard. We're right back at home. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's another standard that is called out 14971. Then as you go through the process, and if in the clinical trial, they identify any new hazards that weren't in that original, then you have to put those in your 14971 risk management. So it's connecting together 14971 and 14155 so that there's an interchange of information between those two processes. What kind of hazards should the uh, clinical trials people uh, be warned of before they start exposing the device to patients? And when they do expose the device to patients and they find new hazards, we need to tell the risk management people about that. So there's exchange of information going on between the two throughout the process. Brought up um, when we started the conversation with the clinical trials, the foreseeable misuse. And so that can often be an absolute rabbit trail of hypothesis for industry as well. What is the logical way to know when you can stop going deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole when you've done your due diligence? I've got a little bit different example of that because uh, we were doing a uh, um, risk analysis on a medical bed one time, and they went through those uh, questions that everybody has copied out of the informative annexes 
of uh, 14971 are used for these safety-related characteristics. And one of those covered radiation, right? We have this medical bed in this room and we're sitting there doing the risk analysis and the people got down to the question on radiation and they said, well, there's radiation coming in the window of the room from the sun that's impinging on this bed. Now, how do we, wait a minute here, folks. What in the heck are you talking about? This is not anything that needs to be explored. It's not a reasonably foreseeable misuse, certainly. It's something that happens every day. And we've got lots of history and, and medical beds have been around for, oh gosh, for a long time and, and nobody's been injured from the sun uh, radiating into the rooms. So um, it has to be something that is reasonably foreseeable. And one way of determining that is looking through your history of what's happened before, your own complaint files, your own adverse event files, the regulators' adverse event files. Right now, it's the FDA, but soon to come to a theater near you is the EU's files, hopefully are going to be accessible for manufacturers. And we'll be able to see what kinds of things have already happened. Anything that's already happened is reasonably foreseeable. And that's why the FDA says uh, on malfunctions on, on the MDR um, that uh, it, if it's something that could occur again or could occur, uh, if it's already occurred once, it could occur again. So now it's reportable as a malfunction. Yeah. So same concept here. Geez, all that thought out a little bit more because um, last year I had a rash of people coming to ask me to do a literature review for a preliminary hazard analysis. And they were presenting it to me in context of like the literature review you would do for a CER. And I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, where are people coming up with this? And then I like searched the 24971 and the 14971. And it's talking about exactly what you're talking about, literature related to adverse events. And these people were asking me to do literature reviews to search. Well, I know my device is sterile and I need an article that's, that shows me I need to put this in a preliminary hazard analysis that if, it's, if the packaging is breached, and I'm like, no, that's just logic tells you that. You don't have to do a literature search. You need to do a literature search on the features, the use, et cetera, of your product. And has it caused adverse events? Yeah, we've got, we've got all this going on in Europe with post-market surveillance and clinical evaluation reports and all this, which is taking us different directions than, than we thought. S certainly a sterile thing that's already happened you know time and time again it, it's right. real easy to go to the fda's mdr uh to the mod database and find those boom so that's happened easy to understand needs to be in there so it, it needs to be part of your product requirements your design inputs now let me go someplace else on design inputs 13485 the quality system standard and Clause 7.3.3c says design inputs consist of, among other things, outputs of risk management. Well, that tells you something right there is that you have to have already completed risk management activities 
to get outputs of the risk management process to be design inputs at the front of your design, design development process. So that's telling you the risk management comes first. Right. And this also gets back to your point about how FMEA alone isn't enough of a tool for your risk analysis process. And we've been talking about the preliminary hazard analysis. You know, tell me a little bit about your thoughts about that as a first step. And then how do you use that to identify characteristics related to safety and flow it into your design process? Okay, PHA is a fantastic tool. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of in-depth description of how to use it, except in one strange place, Wikipedia. Wikipedia <laughs> has a template uh, to fill out for PHA. P PHA came out of Mill Standard 882, which is now in its E version, but it doesn't tell you too much about it. It just says you need to do it. Then I found it again in the FAA system safety document in uh, uh, chapter eight and nine, talk about PHA with a little bit more information. But the most I've found, like I said, is in Wikipedia. And, and there's, of course, some consultants out there that will sell you templates and stuff like that. I try to do things I can for free <laughs> where possible. Where is the, the, how does the safety hazard characteristic, SC, safety characteristics hazards identification questions from 24971 factor into this? Okay, so um, the, the standard requires you to consider characteristics related to safety. It used to be, I think it was, it was NXC, I think in 2007. Well, with all the things we moved, that became Annex A in 24971, which now has, I think it, it went up from 32 to 37 questions now that give you some ideas, some information on things you need to think about. Does this apply to your device or not? Well, the medical bed people don't need to talk about radiation from the sun. That's not a characteristic they need to think about because I found that out a long time ago. And um, there are some things, you know, you need to consider. And these are examples, not requirements. So these are things to think about. And it's not an exhaustive list because technology keeps moving forward through time. I'm not sure there's anything about AI, cybersecurity in there, but those are things that if you have software in your device, you need to be thinking about. So. Um, all these things are ideas for you to investigate, starting with your PHA and looking for information out there that may relate to your device or the characteristics that you're building into your device. If it's electrical, everybody knows you're going to apply IEC 60601. There's a whole list of characteristics related to safety in 601. And clause 14 and 601 is software. So if you're making software and it's, you know, it's a computer controlled device, then that's part of the consideration. If it's a software as a medical device, it's, you're not going to apply 601. Uh, so you're going to have to look elsewhere to find out why that software consideration is important. You just think about, well, how I'm going to make this thing, how we're going to implement it, and what kind of things occur because of that implementation. 
And here's a list of thoughts that we might want to cover while we're doing that. You, you kind of um, are uh, building that first block of what your device is going to look like. You know, and you're going to then start breaking that up into sub uh, assemblies and, and uh, all that kind of thing as you go. And each of those is going to have some characteristics related to it. But this is the beginning. This is because we have to have design inputs from the outputs of risk management. We got to start early while we're still conceptualizing. You can do PHA during feasibility, during research. And that's very valuable because that's also how you get risk management inputs into clinical trials if you have to do them. It, it's how you get yourself thinking about, okay, what's my intended use of this product that I'm going to be making? One time I had a vice president come up to me and he says, um, in two years, we've got a show and we have to have a product. I said, okay, can you tell me what the product is? He says, no, we have to have a product for the show. That's not an intended use. It's not telling me what the characteristics this product are going to be, but that was his thing get this product out the door mm -hmm. what product have to start with something so we've talked brought up uh several times um changing technology how it impacts mm -hmm. the changing in regulations what's needed in the standard you know lastly what do you see as the future outlook um for the next revision and is there anything specific that the committee is already entertaining we may be <laughs> entertaining some stuff. In the EU, there are no standards harmonized to the IVDR, MDR as of this morning, as far as my uh, information goes. There have been two attempts at developing harmonized standards for those two. Both were rejected by the standards bodies in Europe, Sen and Senelec, who are the bodies responsible for developing harmonized standards. They are back at the drawing board the European Commission has issued a draft in November with a comment period ending in December for that draft. And from what I've heard, the commission is just not listening to those comments. They're not revising the standardization process to meet those uh, comments that have come in from the public. So right now, we don't have harmonized standards. We did our best in 14971 at trying to adapt to the MDR and IVDR. For instance, you'll find that in clause four, um, the title now is uh, risk management system. Well, MDR and IVDR both have a requirement for a risk management system. So clause four describes what a risk management system is now because we put that one word in the title and with all the descriptions that were under it. So now everybody can see what that means. We extensively, and here's the biggest hit in the, in the revision that did occur in uh, 14971, what is now clause 10, which is uh, production and post-production information, that was changed a whole lot based upon regulatory requirements in the MDR and IVDR. Requirements as the FDA has put in place for benefit risk, requirements that have come in from things like the, the new post-production technical report 20416, which connects together 
1345 and 1491, because 1345 revised their, what used to be CAPA, so monitoring and feedback, I think is the title now. We mesh with that very nicely because the actual source document for both 1345 and 14971 is the GHTF CAPA guidance document, which has much more information than it about production and post-production and CAPA and all that stuff. So we've all gone back to that route, which is still supported by IMDRF, and they have that on their website free. You can get that and, and look at that. So we decided to to uh, make ours mesh with with all of those things. And that I was on that sub team that worked on that. And that was a long process. You will find now that you have to actively collect information. You can no longer sit around and wait for the phone to ring with a complaint. You have to go out and search for information about your product. And that includes social media. Mm. Unfortunately. Got to go down that rabbit hole now. Yeah. A point that I want to close on, and I get so much negative feedback every time I post something about this on um, LinkedIn, is that the MDR, while it seems like a radically new approach, and it did raise the bar a lot. It, but it raised the bar to what guidance documents have been out there for decades that everybody had been ignoring. And now they just incorporated those things as actual regulations and no longer optional for your education, convenience, interpretation. The MDR came about because of the breast implant scandal in France, uh, where the manufacturer You'll get an email on LinkedIn about that one for sure. That uh, ALARP uh, allowed them to uh, use industrial grade silicon in the breast implant rather than medical grade because the medical grade was too expensive and not enough of it was available. So they could go ahead and do that because they used ALARP. Well, that was an incorrect use of that risk policy. Okay. What they did is just say, hey, you can't use that risk policy because it was used incorrectly, but you can't do that. And now it has to be as low as possible. But then they got in trouble with that, with the uh, 2012 version, because how do you prove it's as low as possible? How do I know there's not one more risk control out there that will reduce the risk? How do you provide that objective evidence that says you've looked at everything possible? Well, now they added that uh, uh, without impact, negatively impacting the benefit to risk ratio. They've said, no, you can't make the, the product unavailable because that's a benefit. If the product's not available, the patient doesn't have that option. The whole thing has, has kind of come together, but it, it was based on stuff that's been out there before. And, mm -hmm. and this is maybe my opportunity to, to say, Michelle, the way you do risk management is as if you are the first patient that's going to get this device. It is not a compliance requirement that you put this document in the file. That's not the reason that if that's all you're going to do, don't do it. You're wasting everybody's time. What you are supposed to be doing is producing a device that is safe to use. 
and as safe as the current state of the art allows. And state of the art is another key concept. There's three definitions that appear in 14971 uh, that are brand new anywhere. The first one is benefit. We've been asked to do benefit to risk analysis, but nobody said what benefit was. Well, that's defined in the standard now. Um, it's uh, definition 3.2. Definition 3.28 is state of the art, and state of the art is not bleeding edge stuff. It is what's generally acceptable. And oftentimes it's what's defined in standards. Okay, so there's that one. The other one is reasonably foreseeable misuse. And we, uh, we had a discussion, I'll, I'll call it a discussion, with the uh, people responsible for the uh, usability engineering standard 62366 about where the definition needed to be. Was that a usability definition or was that a risk management uh, definition? And they said, well, you guys are the only ones who are using it, so put it in your standard. So reasonably foreseeable misuse is now defined in in 14971. So those are three new terms. And um, just to give you an idea of the importance, MDR talks a lot about state of the art. Our friends at BSI, they said 14971, 2019 is the state of the art medical device risk management standard. And they published that in their compliance navigator. So that is public information. That's what BSI has said. Now, unfortunately, there's still notified bodies out there that are refer referring to 14971-2012, which was withdrawn by Sen and Senelec when uh, the 2019 version was, was released. The 2012 version is the only harmonized standards for the directives, and there are no harmonized standards for the regulations. So you can't use 2012 for the regulations. And there, I think there was a court case that, that came up on that. So um, you you we, heard it here, folks. MDR is still coming. And and uh, we've just got a short period of time to get it together. But you have to reach an agreement with your notified body mm -hmm. on what risk management system needs to be. And the only way you can do it, because they can't consult with you anymore, is to give them the, the system and they tell you, no, that's not it. Here's what's missing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're doing this on March the 2nd. And most of you know, I have the countdown up for, yep. uh, so we're at T minus 86 days. So if you haven't had these conversations, get on the books now, start talking, start learning, um, get some of these GHTF guidance documents. They're as old as time that are now adopted into the regulations and get caught up. Yeah, so. process validation is, is way back around, uh, I think the original was in the 1990s, but um, that, that's still the document the FDA uses uh, for inspection uh, mm -hmm. of devices is the GHTF uh, process validation guidance. So those are, those are good documents. As long as they appear on the IMDR website, they're still a supported document. And um, when IMDRF decides they need to be revised, they will reissue them as an IMDRF guidance. But as long as they're still shown on the, on the uh, webpage there, um, they're still a a acceptable to use. 
Okay. Well, thanks for your time, Edwin. I think this has been good stuff. Lots of nuggets in here. And um, I hope everybody enjoyed it. I did. Thanks, <laughs> Michelle, for the opportunity. You're always a, a good company. <laughs>